We'll use a worksheet tonight. We're in the fourth chapter of Hebrews. I'm going to preach a sermon from two verses of Scripture, and that's verse, verses, they are verses 12 and 13. So if you have your worksheet there, you can turn and get ready. I want to read one verse of Scripture before I read the text. And that verse of Scripture is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. I'm going to read this and then I'll go back to the text. And for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received from us the word of God's message, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Now we'll do the text, which is if, uh, Hebrews chapter 4, a familiar verse or passage, verses 12 and 13. For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of the soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts, that is, the emotions and the motives of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from His sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. There are some verses of Scripture that are so familiar that you find yourself, your, your lips moving when somebody reads them. John 3.16 is an example. When somebody reads John 3.16, you find yourself just quoting that as that person reads it, I'm sure. Romans 8.28 is one. For we know that all things work together for good to them that love God and are called according to His purpose. Uh, Genesis 1.1 and some portions of Psalm 23. Even the unredeemed know these verses of Scripture. And I think that Hebrews 4.12 falls into that category. Now, we may not be able to quote the verse, but we just kind of pick up on it when we hear it because we've heard that verse quoted so many times. But it seems rather foreign as it relates to this setting. If you've been here at all on Sunday night for the last month, you know that this verse seems totally out of place in the setting of what we've been studying we've been looking at, we've been talking about, not about the Word of God at all, but about resting in the Lord. And, it's, and it points up the value of a transition statement. Not long ago I went uh, home on Sunday night and I was dead tired and I, I uh, got my uh, place on the couch and I turned on the television to watch the uh, Dale Hansen sports special. And I was just barely able to stay awake and and, and so I had uh, turned on the sports special, and, 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 it, and it was showing uh, uh, old Herschel Walker breaking away. That's the last thing I remember. The next thing I remember was this big fat guy with a, big, with a beard talking about sex education in the public schools, you know, looking right at me there on television. And for a minute, you know, I was kind of, you know, stunned. What, what's he doing, you know, uh, breaking away for a... Cowboy score. I needed somebody 
to give me some kind of a transition statement to say to you, to say to me, hey, you dummy, you went to sleep, you went to sleep with a Dale Hansen's sports special, and you woke up with this uh, talk show. What is the guy's name? This big fat guy with a beard. This talk show. The, the value of a transition statement. Now, somebody needs to give us a transition statement and show us how this passage relates to resting in the Lord. Well, I think there is a transition statement, and it's, but it's implied. Now, you need to remember with me what we've learned already about resting in the Lord. We've learned a definition of what it means to rest in the Lord. This is what it means. It means to relax in the sufficiency of Christ. It means to lay aside your anxieties and the things that just harass you and relax in Christ's sufficiency. We learn, secondly, that resting is something that we ought to enter. We are not surrounded immediately upon salvation. In other words, you can be saved and never rest in the sufficiency of Christ for every day's need. We learned a third thing, and that is that this resting space is still available to, to, to us. It wasn't something that was stopped when the people of God entered the land of promise or the land of rest. And the fourth thing we learned was that it is not something that comes natural. Jesus said there are two kinds of rest. Now watch this. He said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And the rest he's talking about is that we can relax in the sufficiency of His redemptive work. He will give us rest from the burden of our sin and the guilt of it. Then he goes on to say, And take my yoke upon, me and, upon you and learn of me, and you shall find rest unto your soul. There's two kinds of rest. The, the rest that we find is a rest that requires the bending of every effort to enter into this resting space. That is, to trust or relax in the sufficiency of Christ for every day. Now, when you trusted Jesus for salvation, you relaxed in the sufficiency of Christ to save you. But many of us have never learned to, how to relax in the sufficiency of Christ for every need and every crisis. And so the point of this passage is this. You want to get a point? the point? The point is this. Stop playing games with God. We talk about rest, and all the time we reserve these thought patterns that make rest impossible. I need to say that again because that's the point of this. We talk about resting in the Lord, and yet we reserve these thought patterns. The Bible refers to them as strongholds, that make resting in the sufficiency of Christ impossible. And we need something to jolt us to new thought patterns that make resting possible. Now, question. What is, what is it that will break us free from the old thought patterns? The answer is this. It is the Word of God. That's how it fits together. The Word of God jolts us to new thought patterns that make it possible for us to relax in the sufficiency of Christ. Now here is the transitional statement. You got a place for it? Here it is. Mental habits enslave us and keep us from resting. We need God's truth 
to free us from that bondage. We need God's truth to free us from that bondage. Something that will break down the strongholds, the mental thought patterns that prevent us from relaxing in the sufficiency of Christ. Now, I want you to take your little New Testament. I want you to turn to the 8th chapter of John's Gospel. Everybody's, yeah, everybody's looking at that. John 8, verse 31. And I want to show you something that maybe you haven't thought of in a while. Jesus, therefore, was saying to those Jews who had believed Him, If you abide in My word, then you are truly disciples of Mine, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Anybody heard that today? I went out to um, Alpha Chi induction today, and that was a statement made to everybody who was inducted into Alpha Chi. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Now look at verse 35. And the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. If therefore the son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. You shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Now, what Jesus is saying to these Jews is this. You are hanging on to pride, to roots, to traditions. He said, you are thinking traditionally that is based, a a thought that is based on a lie. And you need the truth to set you free from those old thought patterns that bind you and keep you from relaxing in Christ's sufficiency. For there is something freeing about truth. It bombards false hope, falsehood and brings hope and help. And what Jesus is saying is, when you get the truth, the truth that comes from the truth Himself, then He shall set you free from these bondages of the mind and you'll be able to relax in His sufficiency. Strongholds that keep us from resting in the Lord. Now, we think that the greatest sin, you know, the greatest sin uh, is, is some physical sin, some overt sin. That's not true. The greater sin might be mental sin. For mental sin is a is often so subtle we can't really nobody can confront it with us. In fact, Jesus said one time, He said, "If you uh, you say thou shalt not steal, and yet you desire someone else's, thou shalt not kill, and yet you harbor mentally thoughts of anger and resentment towards your brother, you're guilty of the sin." There, there are these mental bondages that prevent. Resting in the Lord. I want to nail that down because that is essential. We said last week that there are three enemies to resting. Presumption, thinking we know how God's going to deal in every situation. Panic, where we just panic and say there's no hope of help for me. And pride that causes us to say I don't need anybody's help. And these three mental attitudes are 
are bondages that we have to be free from before we can relax in the Lord. And, and surely that is the goal and the objective and the desire of everybody here, to be able to just relax in His sufficiency and never be bombarded with anxiety and fear anymore. Now, the first truth from the text I want you to grasp is this. God's truth is effective. That's a simple statement. God's truth is effective. It's like nothing else. The best kept secrets in this room tonight are, are the, is the stuff of the heart. And God's truth performs spiritual surgery. It just opens up the heart and forces us to face what is in our heart, what is in the attitude beneath the surface. God's Word, he said, is living and active. It is effective. Now, we need to identify what he means by God's Word, the Word of God. Well, it is this body of revealed truth known as the Bible. It reaches where nothing else reaches. Now, it, it, when it's read or heard, it's a dynamo. But I want to go a step further than just to say the Bible, the body of revealed truth. I think that the Word of God is also that counsel of godly people. You know, God often uses somebody to counsel us, you know, and, and gives us His Word through others. That's, that's happened to you, hasn't it? Now, that counsel is not infallible, and it's not inspired, to be sure, and yet God gives us a word often for the counsel of the godly. Sometimes His music on a hymn or a page I just sitting there singing, you know, thinking tonight as we were singing, um, tell me the story of Jesus, write on my heart every word, just got all excited. God just spoke to me in that. Tell me that story. That's what we all want to hear is the story of Jesus. And God just takes music sometimes and lifts it off the page and speaks a word to us. And sometimes through sermons or books, uh, Paul mentions this very thing in the verse I read from 1 Thessalonians that this is God's Word that he was preaching. And that's what makes the ministry exciting is that God speaks directly through someone else to us and gives us his Word. And that Word is effective. Now he says three, there are three characteristics of his Word and two abilities. Would you get these? Three characteristics of his Word. And two abilities. One characteristic, it is, it is alive, it is living. The Word of God is alive. Ninety years before the atomic bomb was dropped on Nagasaki, something happened on, in Nagasaki Bay that was more, had more impact than the atomic bomb. In 1854, a fleet of British ships laid anchor in Nagasaki Harbor and a Japanese general by the name of Wagasa was given the responsibility to watch that British fleet to see there were no landings. And so they, he got his men, and they were in little boats out in Nagasaki Harbor, and they were watching this British fleet and what, with their spy, their glasses. And one day, you know, the telescope, one day they saw uh, uh, something drop from one of the boats, the British ship. One of the sailors dropped something accidentally in the water. It was a New Testament. And as soon as these Japanese uh, could get over there and scoop that up, they, they got it. And, and Wagasa thought, well, well maybe it, it contains some document 
that will, that, that will reveal some secret invasion of Japan. And so as quick as he could, he got an interpreter to interpret that, that, that document to him. And it was the New Testament. And this guy, this interpreter, read every sentence of the New Testament to Wagasa. He was so impressed by it that he got a translation of the New Testament in Chinese and read it over and over and over again, every page of it to himself. And the bottom line was that he became a Christian and the little group in his life and all of his family became a Christian and the impact of the scripture dropped in Nagasaki Bay impacted all of Japan 90 years before the atomic bomb was dropped. Because the Word of God is alive. Now, somebody said, you don't have to defend the Scripture. The Bible is a, a line. All you got to do is turn it loose and it defends itself. You just take this Word of God, this revealed truth, the Word that God speaks through others, through sermons, through the counsel of the godly, and that Word lives. Second, it is active. It is dynamic. The Word of God reaches where nothing else reaches. It touches what nothing else touches. And the third thing he says about it is that it is sharp. And he draws a contrast, sharper than a two-edged sword. Now the Romans developed that sword. It was sharp on both sides so that when they came down with it, it cut. And when they came up with it, it cut. So that it cut on both, both sides, it was sharp. It, meant, it means that it cuts through. Now the Word of God has two abilities. It has the ability to pierce and it has the ability to judge. Now watch this. The word pierce means to go through. If I took, you know, a, a sharp pen knife and put it through this paper, that would be, you know, I'd be piercing the paper with a pen knife. The Word of God goes through. It pierces. There's no surgical procedure tonight that can correct a bad attitude or a lustful heart or open a closed mind, or change a rebellious spirit. But God's Word pierces to make change in the human heart. It is secondly, it is able to judge. The word judge there is, is the word in the Greek that means to analyze, to criticize, or to scrutinize. You ever looked at your x-rays? You've shown me some of your x-rays. I know you've looked at your x-rays. You've got those up there and you say, Hey, that's my bones, beautiful as they are. That, that's my bones. Those are my lungs. And, and what you see inside is only in the realm of the anatomy. Now watch this. The Word of God is the x-ray of the soul. So that this Word, which is alive and sharp and active, exposes the feelings, he calls them thoughts of the heart, that is, your feelings and your motives. No wonder we don't like to read the Bible. Because the Bible confronts us with the way we feel and why we do what we do. This last week I was, uh, I was doing some quiet time in the book of Ecclesiastes. Just me and... And old Solomon walking around and working there in the, in the book of Ecclesiastes. And this is what, you know, and I, and I was thinking to myself, what am I doing in the book of Ecclesiastes? I had a bad week anyway. I mean, it was, you know, despair. 
Nothing new under the sun, vanity of vanities. And then all of a sudden, God said, boom, and he taught me something. The author of the book, Ecclesiastes, said, the only reason a man labors, and you're talking about pessimism, the only reason a man labors is so he can get ahead of his neighbor. And God just spoke to me, and I had to write God a little letter, and I wrote God this letter. God, don't let my activity and labor in the church be just so I can get ahead of the next preacher down the street. And God exposed a motive that, you know, I hate to confess to you tonight, that a lot of times the energy that I put out is energy that is expended so I can be a little bit better than the next Baptist church or the next Baptist preacher. And, I had to, you know, and God just showed me that. And so I had to ask, God, don't let me be that kind of person. He exposes the motives of our heart. And so the lady of Samaria came and back to town and said, Come out here. I want you to see the man that has told me everything I've done. That's what God's Word does. Now watch this carefully. The bottom line or the goal or objective out here is that we'll be able to relax in the sufficiency of Christ but in order for us to get there, there's some thoughts and, and motives and feelings that God's going to have to deal with before we can ever get to that place. And that's where the Word of God comes in. Now, our tendency is to hide. That's what verse 13 says. That's why we don't read God. We, don't want, we, don't want, we hide. And verse 13 says that God's Word has a universal scope. Somebody said, a secret sin on earth is an open scandal in heaven. So men try to hide, and, and like fools, we think that if it's dark, we can hide. But the Word of God has a universal scope. It reveals all sin. And it has an unlimited exposure. For he said, there is nothing that is not open. The word means uncovered, naked. For everything is, is open, uncovered, and laid bare. Now let me show you what that word means, that word laid bare. It's the word we get, the word trachea from, the trachea. And it refers to, you know, it has two or three uh, implications. One is where, where it's wrestler. Have you ever seen, you know, these guys have these secret holes? I mean, they get, kind of get a little spot on their neck, you know, and everybody just, just paralyzed. I never did believe that. But that's another problem. What, what he said, he, he's talking about back in that day, there were the wrestlers that they could get a, get a certain hold on the trachea and just paralyze them. They were just mesmerized. That's what he's talking about. And it's also a word that was, it was used when they'd take a sacrificial animal and they'd get it by the neck and cut its throat. But the most prominent use of this word in the Greek laid bare was when a prisoner was taken out to his execution. Right in the eye. You can't duck it. You can't hide from it. The Word of God has an unlimited exposure. Now... Lest we think, well, now this is kind of frightening and, and intimidating. No. You see, what we're after is to be able to rest in the sufficiency of Christ. 
And the Word of God deals with those matters of the mind, those strongholds that prevent our relaxing and sufficiency of Jesus. Now, I have two applications. The first is, by way of exhortation, submit to surgery. Submit to surgery. I mean, think of the time when truth is going to be declared as spiritual surgery. Um, I, I don't suppose, you know, I don't know everything. I've been to a couple of goat ropings and, and uh, do rat line football game, but I, 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 don't, I don't know everything, but I don't know if I've ever heard of a guy uh, in surgery saying, let me stay awake till, so I can tell the doctor where to operate. You know? And so we say, yeah, I'll cut right over there, doctor. Yeah, that's right, because I feel it. You know, I, I don't know anybody that does it. In fact, if I ever have surgery, I want them to put me sound asleep three days before, before surgery. I, I, I'm going to put myself totally in the hand of the surgeon. Let me tell you what. God's desire for you is that you learn how to relax in His sufficiency and if you will submit to the surgery of God's Word, He'll get you where you can do that. Isn't that exciting? The second application by way of exhortation, don't fight the surgeon. Don't fight the surgeon. I mean, heart surgery is serious business. And what God is after in every life present here tonight, what He is after in every life is just the thing that keeps you from being healthy and whole. Let's pray together. God, we pray that you'll take your word day by day as we learn it and study it, read it. As we, ex as we ad admit, admonish one another in the need of a quiet time, help us to realize that it is in your word that we're able to find the resting place and how to get to it, how to rest in your sufficiency. Lord, we pray that you'll take all the time you need and do whatever's necessary to bring about the changes of thoughts and strongholds that prevent our faith. God, we've learned so many things over the years. We've trusted in so many facts and, and so many falsehoods. We've got so much that keeps us from just trusting you and relaxing in you. And God, we believe that your word is the way to find that out. Help us to love it, to, to depend on it, to trust it, to cherish it. May it be like a sword to pierce us tonight. We pray in Jesus' name for His sake. Now I'd like to give three invitations. First invitation is for you to receive Christ as your personal Savior, the Lord Jesus, your only hope and salvation, rededication of your life to Jesus, transfer of your life to this church in ministry and service by ways of uh, statement or whatever. That's so important that you do God's will in invitation time. So we're going to ask you to
prayerfully consider the will of God for you in these next moments as we stand to sing.